Making sure that, you know, we are carefully planning and delivering these deep structural changes that are needed uh, in such a way that those that are to be deeply affected by these changes don't lose their livelihoods. And, and in fact, you know, they can take advantage of the new opportunities that exist and that can be generated. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Hyland. This week, CSIS is excited to introduce you to new work that we are undertaking with the Climate Investment Funds on Just Transitions. To help us understand what a just transition is and why it is so important, Sarah Ladislaw of the CSIS Energy Security and Climate Change Program is joined by Mafalda Duarte of the Climate Investment Fund and Nick Robbins with the Grantham Institute. Together, they look at how countries can continue to transition away from emissions-intensive energy sources and take steps to build more resilient communities while promoting environmental sustainability, social equity, and economic development. Let's turn it over to Sarah now. Mafalda, Nick, it's a real pleasure to have you guys here today with us on Energy 360 for this special session where we're going to be talking about the issue of just transitions. In particular, you know, uh, in light of the fact that we are starting some work at CSIS and with the Climate Investment Fund and Grantham Institute is also doing a lot of work on investigating the role of just transition in a conversation about climate change and the transformational change that we need to see happen in order to tackle that big global challenge. We just happen to be doing it now in the context of another global challenge, the COVID-19 pandemic. So we hope to talk about all of that with you today. Just as background, you know, just transition is a concept that is really familiar to some people and not as familiar to other people. It's a concept in a term largely born out of the labor movement in thinking about economic transformation for displaced workers. But oftentimes in the climate context, it butts up against environmental justice issues, gender and equity issues, and a whole bunch of other concepts of justice that are really important when we think about the broad societal transformation necessary in order to deal with uh, global climate change. So just for starters, I thought it would be good to orient our listeners, maybe start with you, Mafalda, to talk about, you know, the language and the concept of the just transition and how it's evolved over time to incorporate or intersect with some of the work that you all are doing at the Climate Investment Fund. Could you just explain a little bit about what a just transition means to you in the context of that work? Sure. Thank you very much, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be with all of you here today. So we at the Climate Investment Funds have made this a priority uh, to bring together these leading thinkers, such as, you know, CSIS, uh, Grantham Institute, country and, and local stakeholders to really try to further the understanding around this key issue of just transition for two main reasons. The first reason is that we agree that this topic is widely discussed, but it's prone to quite different interpretations. And two, for us, it's a critical topic. If we want to and if we are to attain our climate and sustainable development goals, so, you know, our experience over the past three years, we have been uh, working quite deliberately on the analytical front and gathering evidence and bringing a lot of stakeholders together as well 
to reflect on the topic of transformational change mm -hmm. and including the development of a framework uh, through which one can think about, you know, the design and implementation of policies and investments. And we believe that, you know, actually bringing these two together is critical. We need such similar work around just transition in the context of, you know, climate action and the deep changes we need to see in a lot of the sectors of the economy. So we really need to bring these things together. And so, you know, with this background in mind that, you know, one of the intents of our work in collaboration with you and others is to allow for deeper analysis into this concept and a solid interpretation and framework around just transition. And so with that context in mind that that's where we want to move towards at the moment for us and for me in particular, what just transition means in the context of, of climate action is, pre is precisely reaching climate goals without leaving no one behind. Mm -hmm. So it, it is making sure that, you know, we are carefully planning and delivering these deep structural changes that are needed uh, in such a way that those that are to be deeply affected by these changes don't lose their livelihoods. And, and in fact, you know, they can take advantage of the new opportunities that exist and that can be generated. So, you know, to me, it's, it's about bringing more evidence to bear and more analysis to bear and bringing more stakeholders together. Uh, to make it quite clear that, you know, when we talk about climate and just transition and deep transformation, we are not talking about choosing between the planet and the people or the planet and the well-being, that in fact, you know, these two are interconnected. Mm -hmm. But to be so, for this interconnection to be sustainable, respectful, it requires deliberate action. You know, it's just not going to happen naturally. And so, but for us to have deliberate action, we also need the tools to enable those that, you know, have to act upon it in different ways, in different forms, uh, to be well equipped to do so. That's great. And Nick, maybe from your perspective, how are you all thinking about a just transition at the Grantham Institute and why is it an issue that you've chosen to focus on so closely? I think for many people, the just transition is perhaps quite a new phrase. It may seem quite a heavy phrase, just <laughs> a big, big concept. But I think actually it's fairly straightforward if you look at it in the context of sustainable development. So the goal to, uh, as my founder said, to transform our economies by integrating uh, economic, social and environmental issues. And I think what is happening now that we're focusing on the transition we're realizing that, yes, climate change may be classified as an environmental issue, but the transition is not really anything to do with the environment. It is a process of socioeconomic change, technological change, cultural change, political change, and, and, and so on. So, so this is a process that needs really to think have the sort of socioeconomic dimension at the heart of it. So it's something which I think maybe is new for many, but I think if you put it in the broader sustainable development context, it becomes quite clear. And I see it particularly as a way of sort of joining up the SDGs. Often, I think we mm. see people look at the sustainable development goals a bit like a buffet, a bit of this and a bit of that. But actually, <laughs> I think if we actually see them as an integrated whole, 
It's essentially SDG 7 and growth and, and employment and so on with SDG 13, but that's also going to re- require a gender dimension, a focus on poverty, focus on inequality, clean energy, and so on. So I think for me, the just transition and the excitement about it is that actually it helps us sort of connect many of these disparate issues. For us, I think the work we've been doing, sort of five or so key themes have come out of it. First is actually maximizing the social opportunities of this process of transformation. Mm. I think sometimes the just transition is seen as as a really downside issue, but I think there are huge opportunities for delivering positive social impacts through this process of moving to a net zero resilient economy. So that's number one, sort of maximizing the opportunities for positive social impact. The second is actually identifying and mitigating some of the transitional issues, whether that's in the workplace, in communities which have high carbon sectors, consumers can often be affected by this process. Small businesses, interestingly, they're often vulnerable to processes of market change, uh, and then maybe citizens as well. So there is a sort of mitigating the social risks. Third piece is really this requires often empowerment that many groups who are vulnerable to change or, or, or could benefit from the change don't have the voice, don't have access to decision making, don't have the skills, the capacities, uh, the resources, whether that's by questions of location or gender or age or class or, or, or location and so on. So, so there is a key empowerment element uh, of this. We are thinking about a transition over many decades. So the fourth point we really look at is anticipation. How do we anticipate some of the trends that are happening? And often, as we see, happening much quicker than many forecasters have expected. And the fifth piece, really the fifth piece of this, is investment, which is why it's great uh, being with you and Mafalda on this, is, is actually this does need financing. A just transition does need financing from the public sector, from development institutions, from commercial banks, from investors, and also from uh, sort of citizens as a whole. So those would be the sort of five dimensions that we we see as we look at the just transition. That's great. I want to come back and talk about the role of investors in just a minute with you, Nick. But I did, you know, want to pick up on something you said and and get Mafalda's perspective on it, which is, you know, just transition does seem like a very new and somewhat inaccessible topic for folks who are not super familiar with it. But at the same time, it's pretty intuitive, right? I mean, it's the idea that there needs to be a sort of evened out transition. And and as you said, you know, put in a positive context, an opportunity for us to unite some of the goals under the sustainable development goal objectives in a positive way and to think about them as a as an endeavor of many parts, you know, towards a better outcome, if you will. I, you know, one of the things, though, is it has become really central in climate negotiations and certainly in the global climate talks. I mean, you saw it make an appearance in the Paris Climate Agreement. You also, we've had a just transition declaration. And should we had been having the comp at the end of this year, it was really expected to feature quite prominently in that context, as well as what we're starting to see countries plan for in their own sort of climate and emissions reductions and transformation plans. So Mafalda, why do you think that just transition has sort of moved to this critical component or this, you know, crucial aspect of climate action? And have you started to see that affect the way that climate policy plans are are taking place around the world, particularly with the countries that you're working at in SIF? And, and maybe you could talk specifically about South Africa, because that's a place where you all have decided to, as part of our joint project, work on a, a specific case study looking at the experience in South Africa. So, I mean, the first thing to say is that, you know, and I, I agree with Nick and I agree with you, you know, d- this concept of just transition 
it is a concept it is a concept of social inclusion and therefore you know um it should be the lens through which development work and socioeconomic development work is looked at when we think about climate change right now i think the why this just transition is so critical and it's so critical to put it at the core of climate action it's because you know all of the scientific studies are telling us we need to act and we need to act quite fast and the the changes and the structural changes and transformations that are required are quite deep and they need to happen quite fast so because of that you know we really need to make sure that we put just transition at the core of climate action if we want to to have deep meaningful reforms and if we want to have them you know at a pace that is aligned with our climate goals i don't think we will attain this without just transition at the core of our work i mean as we have seen as well last year and and we we keep seeing uh, examples in multiple countries one of the major barriers to achieving our climate goals are and and i think will continue to be the perceived and actual negative impacts of the transitions that are associated with certain policies and investments linked to the the climate goals agenda so we know mm-hmm. that you know populations are quite sensitive in particular of course in developing countries but elsewhere to changes in the prices of basic commodities you know food energy transport and this is for good reasons you know they these represent large share of their of the budget of most of these households and so you know last year we saw states of emergency declared in chile after increase in metro ticket prices and in mm. ecuador after a reform of energy prices in france you know with the increase of carbon tax uh that had to be you know canceled because of the massive protests by the gilets jaunes so to me you know and to us it's unavoidable if we are really serious about climate goals about sdgs to make it very clear that just transition needs to be at the core and it's in fact by bringing these climate action and just transition agendas together that we have a powerful chance of achieving uh meaningful change you know we need to tell people that you know there are massive opportunities in pursuing this low carbon and climate resilient growth several studies out there you know indicating you know several studies quite recent ones just to name a few new climate economy saying you know 26 trillion in net global economic benefits between now and 2030 can be achieved 65 million new low carbon jobs I and mean, this is the equivalent of the labor force of UK and Egypt combined the global commission on adaptation has found that the net benefit of investing in resilient infrastructure over the next decade in developing countries could be 4.2 trillion dollars over the lifetime of these infrastructures so $1 invested generating $4 in benefit I mean food and land use coalition finding that key transitions in the world's food and land use systems which as we can see right now from this pandemic and we'll talk about it a little bit later I'm sure really needs reform and rethinking this you know transitions here could unlock 4.5 trillion dollars in new business opportunities each year by by 2030 so I think you know 
this is what we have. We need all to be communicating. Certainly, you know, decision makers, policy makers, you know, development practitioners, everybody to bring this clarity. Now, you asked the second point was how are we seeing already this dimension of just transition affecting climate policy and planning around the world? I mean, I think we, you know, so first of all, to tell you, and this is also why, you know, we, we are very interested in doing case studies as part of this work. Because, you know, uh, through our existence of climate investment funds, we, we have been uh, working in developing countries since 2008. You know, we are the largest multilateral climate finance lab in the world. You know, we, we have operations across sectors in 72 developing countries. And we have done it in a way which was to say, look, we, did, we need a different process here to come up with the investments and the policies, to prioritize investments and policies. What we said was, you know, we don't want this process of, you know, we talk with the governments or we talk with private sector bilaterally and, and we select projects. You know, good projects, we select a couple or two or three or four per country good projects. We, we didn't take that approach. We, we told our implementing partners, the multilateral development banks, We want a different process. We want you upfront to bring the governments, the civil society, indigenous people representatives, women's organizations, private sector, you know, with governments and different parts of government, because, you know, governments are also entities with different sides to it, bringing them all together and have, you know, uh, discussions and conversations around what are the challenges and opportunities uh, presented by climate action in the country and what, you know, what should be prioritized. And so now, you know, we, we basically want to go back uh, and look at it. We've looked at it from a, you know, a transformational change point of view, not so deliberately around, you know, just transition. So we want to go back and look at some of these case studies and really see, you know, because we had this process, And we were deliberate about this process, which should have been and are expected to be more socially inclusive. You know, what did it generate differently or what did it generate in terms of just transition outcomes? So we are quite interested to look at that. Um, and, and then, mm -hmm. you know, both in terms of identifying the investments, but also in terms of then implementation and results, because we've also asked our implementing partners and those we work with at the country level to continue to have an inclusive process during implementation. So in terms of monitoring and accounting and or reporting, you know, the, the results that are happening on the ground and do course corrections. This is a reason why we are also so interested on the case studies and, 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 and taking advantage of the wealth of, you know, experiences and different experiences we have in our portfolio. But I, I think, you know, what just transition will do in terms of climate policy and planning is it will, and if it's done deliberately, which is what, what we expect, is that we will see changes from a process perspective. What I was just talking about, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. it, it should lead to uh, policy and planning processes which focus on achieving these fair and equitable outcomes. And, and looking at these questions of, you know, who decides? Uh, what kind of transitions and how are different groups included in these decision-making processes? Who benefits and who loses 
and how do we distribute mm-hmm. the benefits and mitigate the losses? So, so I, I think you know we we will definitely need to see changes from a process perspective, and I think from a focus perspective as well. What I would expect by having just transition, you know, at the core of climate action and influencing climate policy and planning, is that you know we will not we will fully see integrated climate development planning and delivery. We will, I mean, we will clearly not have dedicated climate action plans or you know strategies, but you know these become part of you know, the national development plans and policies and strategies, you know, climate and and social inclusivity is part of that. I think, you know, we see, but I think we will see a lot more when we are really clear about just transition at the core of climate action, that, you know, climate policies are the backbone to deliver poverty reduction. And we, we have very clear examples of this to help poor people and, and many poor people without energy access. What's the best way to provide them with energy access is through distributed renewable energy sources. I think both of the things that you've said, you know, are really important, which is that just transition is a very important element to be able to sort of, you know, catalyze confidence and support for more ambitious and transformational climate action. Climate action, though, is also, as Nick had reflected on, is also a really important opportunity to provide, you know, better outcomes for lots of components of society that are not traditionally sort of reflected in some of these conversations. And so there's there's sort of a mutually beneficial piece there. I think, you know, one of the areas where I think both, you know, SIFs going back and looking at some of the case studies and some of the places where climate investments have taken place and that there's been some planning and that there's been, you know, a focus on transformational change it is, you know, really understanding what effect we've had on just transition just in those plans that that weren't necessarily thinking about it at the core, but just to try and understand a little bit better the experience. It's also quite similar to, you know, what CSIS hopes to contribute through this partnership, which is just transition can only be a real motivating factor in climate transition if we understand the policies and the tools and the strategies for affecting a just transition better and making sure that that they work, making sure that we implement them in ways that are actually fruitful and understanding what that looks like in different contexts. I wanted to bring in something that Nick had said earlier here, which is on the role of investors, which I think is also really critical and perhaps even more critical in light of what we're seeing happen with the COVID-19 crisis and the economic downturn and this focus on, you know, re investing in a more durable future. So Nick, I know there's a lot there, but could you talk a little bit about the important role that you all see at at the Grantham Institute for investors and the role of investors in a just transition and maybe reflect on that now kind of in light of these changed circumstances we find ourselves in? So yes, the role of investors is is perhaps the not the most obvious stakeholder to think about when you're thinking about the just transition. But in a sense, when you think about what is the role of institutional investors, they're often managing people's pensions, workers' pensions. And so there's actually a big stake from workers through their pensions in actually, one, ensuring that we are making progress to a resilient net zero economy. There are no jobs on a dead planet, as Sharon Burrow, the head of the ITUC, says. So I think there's a sort of direct interest from savers and pensions uh, in, in achieving a just transition. 
And I think there are so a number of other reasons, really, why investors are, are, are coming on board. Increasingly, investors are recognizing that climate change itself is a threat to their ability to actually deliver long-term returns. This is going to be beyond two degrees. It's going to be increasingly hard for investment funds to actually deliver the returns, to keep pensions afloat and to keep insurance uh, going. And so it's a sort of systemic risk. There's a lot of focus by investors on, on climate change and climate risk now. I think investors are also recognizing that growing inequality in our societies is also a systemic risk. And there's a lot of Mm. very profound macroeconomic uh, analysis that shows that uh, rising inequality does actually bear down on growth and actually, as we know, can cause um, political and economic instability uh, as well. And so that, I think, leads to a sort of first sort of strategic conclusion from uh, long-term investors that as we tackle this systemic risk of climate change, we should make sure that we're not actually adding to this uh, related systemic risk of inequality. So there's a sort mm-hmm. of systemic risk argument for investors. There's also a principled argument as well. Investors have signed up to principles of responsible investment, over $80 trillion around the world, pension funds in all continents, uh, insurance firms, asset managers, and, and, and so on and so forth. And that involves implementing environmental, social, and governance factors into their investment decisions. And that is rested on global standards of human rights, uh, labor standards, ILO standards, and, and, and so on. So there's a principled reason why uh, investors should ensure that strong social conditions are part of their their climate strategies. But one of the funny things, I think, if you look at um, many frameworks we have for climate action, is that there are no people involved. I mean, they're they're people free. <laughs> so many investors are promoting quite rightly the framework of the task force for climate related disclosures as a way to understand how companies are actually uh, addressing climate risks and seizing the opportunities. Many MDBs, IFC among them, have also been doing their own TCFDs. But if you read the TCFD framework, there are no people there. So very oddly, there's <laughs> nothing in the TCFD about is your workforce skilled for the transition ahead? Mm. What sort of restructuring are you thinking about? How are your labor unions involved in that process? What about discussions with the communities, fence-line communities? How are you thinking about the distribution issues with your consumers, your supply chains, and so on? So there's an element there that climate practice to date has has not really been factoring in this social dimension. So a real opportunity to take that forward. So this is maybe the second reason, as a sort of principled reason, and the third is is actually that the just transition for investors is the smart thing to do. I think we're recognizing, certainly talking to investors, but also companies, that not just do you need a just transition for the sort of political economy reasons to make sure that actually we do address this systemic risk, not only because it's the right thing to do, but actually it can build much more resilient investment returns. You can build stronger, better companies, which are actually going to be more robust in the uh, disruption that I think we're going to see increasingly in the global economy. So those are some of the reasons why investors may involved. Our work at the London School of Economics, uh, the Grantham Research Institute, we've been working in partnership with Harvard Kennedy School's Initiative on Responsible Investment, so academic partners, and then working with the Principles of Responsible Investment and the International Trade Union uh, Confederation. So very good, strong collaboration. And what we've done is set out for investors a guide on why they should be thinking about the just transition, 
as part of their strategies. And then we've also launched a sort of statement of support. And what we found very striking, I think, is just how uh, much resonance this has got with institutional investors around the world. So here in Europe, where I'm speaking from, from the, from the US, from Brazil, from South Africa, from Australia, and from Asia. So there are now uh, over 150 institutional investors with about 10 trillion assets who have made a sort of public pledge of support for the just transition. And then this can be, uh, I suppose, realized and made real in a number of ways. We, we obviously want to avoid just sort of people signing pledges and, and, then, and then forgetting about them. So a number of ways this can obviously um, get involved. First is actually making sure that the just transition imperative is incorporated into their investment strategy and incorporated into all the relationships they have. So pension fund with their fund managers and, and, and so on, with their beneficiaries. And that's a good opportunity for dialogue. Second is through shareholder engagement, particularly uh, investors have shares in companies and there's increasing engagement at annual general meetings, shareholder resolutions and so on, but also less perhaps sort of confrontational approaches. And that is already starting in the US Some very good examples of, of investors working and meeting with trade unions, with companies, with state level uh, utility regulators to really try and see how to navigate through this transition process. So that's the shareholder engagement. Then there's capital allocation. Are there particular assets which investments investors could invest in, which in a sense express the just transition. And here, I think the sort of the bond market is a particularly exciting opportunity. Obviously, many of the multilateral development banks um, have been pioneers in the green bond market, uh, also social bonds and so on. And here, I think there's been, there's a lot of interest and demand, in fact, from institutional investors for bond instruments, which both combine climate goals, so let's say the green bonds, but also the social imperatives behind a just transition, social bonds. Spain's ECO, the development agency, has introduced a very interesting social bond, which is about targeting proceeds for small business development in uh, disadvantaged regions. And you could really think about that sort of mechanism being used, let's say, for moving away from coal in, in certain regions as well. So there's a real interest in capital allocation. And then the final thing, perhaps, for investments is actually policy dialogue. Climate change is the market failure, uh, and many of the barriers in the way of the just transition are also ones really which investors can't address themselves, but have to be dealt with through uh, policy reform. But investors can engage, and they do engage with, with governments at the local level, but also the national level, and also internationally through groups such as the G20. And so I think that's, a, that's another way, and I think we're seeing increasing interest from investors particularly leading into the COP26 process, to work with governments to encourage them to ensure that the just transition is part of the nationally determined uh, contributions and the sort of more ambitious climate plans that, that countries are pledging to come forward. So those are the areas that investors uh, are, are working on. And maybe just to add one area we're also uh, looking at beyond that is actually looking at the role of the banking sector. As well, mm. so investors are a very influential actor, but within the financial system, there are different uh, segments of that. Clearly, MDBs, you've got the national development banks, you've got the financial regulators, you've got investors, and so on. But banks are perhaps the ones which are closest to the real economy in many ways. And I think there's a sort of very interesting agenda with to look at in terms of 
more sort of place-based investments, uh, regional investments, and the ways in which banks can support their customers, their clients through this process of change. It's definitely a fascinating body of work that you guys have embarked on. I think, you know, most of the time when we talk about just transition, you're right, people do think about sort of policy frameworks and climate action plans, but investors have shown, you know, to have a real element of influence in this conversation, just like they have in the rest of the climate dialogue as well. So that was really a very helpful overview. You know, I I know we're running a little bit short on time, but I do want to talk with both of you about, you know, the period in time where we find ourselves, which is in the midst of a a pretty unprecedented pandemic and economic downturn. And there's lots of questions, unanswerable questions about where we go from here. But, you know, one of the ones that's particularly relevant for the project that we're working on together is certainly how the coronavirus and the COVID-19 pandemic affect the issue of just transition and potentially how, you know, governments and society respond. So maybe, you know, Mafalda, starting with you from your perspective, how is this current situation affecting how you think about your work at SIF and Just Transition? And then I'll turn to Nick with the same question. Yeah, I mean, this is really, you know, an unprecedented time. And it really, we need to take the opportunity to to reflect as we act and respond and support uh, people that are really, you know, being affected by COVID-19. But, you know, I want to say a couple of things. I think this pandemic and COVID-19 is telling us two things. It's very important that we understand this. One is how much we can neglect highly obvious and highly probable threats, how much we can neglect science and how much we can neglect evidence. So I think it's important for people to understand that over the past 18 years, we, humanity, has witnessed several major pandemics. You know, SARS, swine flu, MERS, Ebola. And on the basis of these, many, many studies uh, have highlighted how health systems worldwide were, and we are seeing it now, are underprepared to handle this epidemics and pandemics. So climate change is telling us the same thing. It's giving us similar warnings, and it's giving us these warnings through, you know, record global temperatures, wildfires, floods, destructive storms, and so I think we ought to reflect about these things. The, the second thing that I think COVID-19 is telling us is that resilience to shocks and resilience to these type of shocks is linked to climate action. You know, I mm-hmm. think it's really important for people to understand this. In sub-Saharan Africa, only 28% of the healthcare facilities benefit from reliable electricity. And we were talking about earlier you know, how are we better able to equip these healthcare facilities with energy supply? It's through renewable energy and storage solutions. We are now seeing the vulnerability of our food supply to national and international trade disruptions. We need to think about what is the sort of food system, food production, food distribution system that we want in the future. It needs to make us think about, you know, local production you know, both in rural and urban areas. And this is all aligned. This will make us resilient to shocks. And this is quite aligned and consistent with climate action, with attaining, you know, our climate goals. Cities, you know, cities are a hotspot for these pandemics. And we know that cities are hotspots for climate action. So if we do what we have to do in an urban environment, we have, you know, proper urban development and growth plans and investments, 
we will become resilient to shocks and we will, you know, be helping respond to the climate goals. So I, I want to say that, you know, this is a big debate. I have to tell you that this is a big debate at the moment in the financial world in terms of development financial institutions. What should be the short-term response? What should be the medium-term response? What should we be advising governments to do? What should these fiscal stimulus packages look like? And so these are really important conversations. And it's important to say that, you know, here, if we really, of course, we have to respond immediately and, and support the health systems. And that's what is happening. But, you know, at the same time, you know, there are big conversations happening around, you know, fiscal stimulus packages and the composition mm -hmm. of these fiscal stimulus packages. We have really large set of investments in energy efficiency, in nature conservation, clean energy options, sustainable transport. There are clear win-win areas for stimulus investments. And we have examples. I mean, Korea did this, Republic of Korea did this in 2008 with the financial crisis. Their stimulus mm -hmm. package included big investments in river restoration, building energy efficiency, green transport. And they delivered 20% of that package within the first half of 2009. So it is not mm -hmm. impossible. So I think, you know, it is important to say restoring degraded forest lands and landscapes can create many jobs over the short term while you mm -hmm. know, generating net benefits that are hundreds of billions of, of dollars in things like watershed protection, better crop yields, forest products. Retrofitting yeah. buildings can create many jobs and support this economic recovery. Public work programs, you know, there are examples of programs such as this in India, Mahatma Gandhi National Rural Employment Guarantee Program in India. It has 80 million participants. Another program mm -hmm. in Indonesia has 10 million participants. And what do these programs do? They focus on irrigation. They focus on afforestation. They focus on soil conservation, focus on watershed development. So, you know, it is possible to combine, you know, these objectives and we must do it. And then, you know, another yeah. interesting debate that is going on is around, you know, ambitious infrastructure projects in energy, transport, water, urban development. Should we really be thinking about those or, you know, put them a little bit in the back burner for the time being? And to this, you know, I, I say very clearly, you know, we know the infrastructure gap in developing countries. Two thirds of the massive amount of investments that will happen in infrastructure will happen in the next couple of decades in developing countries. If we do not mm -hmm. make sure that these investments are low carbon climate resilient, we are doing a major disservice to the future generations. So we need to be, you know, developing that pipeline of ambitious, low carbon climate resilience infrastructure projects right now. And they will help us with economic recovery and sustaining and rebounding from the current situation. That's great. There's so many important points in there. Nick, how does things look from, from your vantage point? Yeah, so I think um, Mafana made some very profound points there about the impacts of the COVID crisis. And what we've really seen in the work we've been doing on Just Transition is how 
the crisis has really propelled forward the just transition. So, we, so if we look at actually at the impact of the crisis so far, it's profoundly unjust uh, in so many uh, dimensions, uh, whether by income or class or by ethnicity or location and so on. So, so I think there's a there's a very strong recognition, and this has been I, I found it very striking to talking to the investor community that this is I think really underscore that as we move to a net zero economy, this has to be uh, inclusive. And I think the sort of recognition about the fragility and the precarious nature of many working conditions that people have. So I think really it's, it's driven the just transition to the fore. Last time, last financial crisis, I was actually working at HSBC. We did a lot of work then actually totting up all the the amounts that governments then were putting towards so-called green stimulus back in 2008-9. Very interestingly, as Mafada touched on, actually a lot of the leadership from that came out of East Asia, Korea, and also uh, China. And our numbers then suggested about 16% of uh, stimulus packages at the global financial crisis were linked to green. Now, that sounds good. It also means that 84% were not. And I think now in the context of the Paris Agreement and the Sustainable Development Goals, we need to make sure that all the recovery plans uh, that come out of this crisis are aligned with the Paris Agreement, and that includes a just transition, not, not just because we want to avoid climate emissions and so on, but we really want to avoid wasted capital in terms of spending scarce public money on projects which could lock us into high carbon pathways and lead to actually not just stranded assets, but also stranded jobs and stranded workers in, in, in the future. So I think now we have the frameworks with the Paris Agreement and the goals to make sure that the recovery plans are actually uh, linked to positive uh, projects. And we have a wealth of projects, wealth of options to, to choose from, shovel ready. And um, many, as we know, the technology costs have come down dramatically in the last 10 years. So building efficiency, natural capital investment. Now, one of the things, again, we haven't, we didn't do last time, and we would need to ensure this time is that as we make these investments and as we we channel these investments towards positive uh, sustainability options from an environmental perspective, that these also do come attached with good labor standards and good community standards as well. Um, mm-hmm. And to ensure that actually there is decent work, which is at the heart of the just transition. And again, from a recovery point of view, that makes a lot of sense because that then drives in terms of income multipliers for workers and and, and so on and helps mm-hmm. sort of develop, I think, some of the sense of security you need in societies as you move forward. One sort of final point, if I may, in 2009, a lot of countries were, were thinking about their stimulus plans, uh, but also there were the negotiations in the climate community towards what was then the COP, which led up to the Copenhagen summit, which is many of your sort of listeners might remember was a was a failure. And there was a failure, actually, I think, of uh, policy imagination to connect the sort of stimulus and recovery plans out of the global financial crisis with climate negotiations. And that can't happen this time. That really can't happen this time. And I think the stimulus plans as well were also very nationally designed. I want to recover my country. And as we know, developing and emerging economies are the hardest hit uh, in this very brutal economic and uh, health crisis. So I think a, a big priority will me- need to be ensure that we mobilize additional flows of, of climate finance from north to south so that we, over the next year, well exceed 
the target of 100 billion in north-south flows, and that this does include a just transition dimension. And I think if we do that, which is entirely possible, then I think that would put us in a very, very good position to have a successful outcome at COP26 when we hope governments will come forward with uh, more ambitious climate plans. And my sense is if we make sure that extra allocation of capital to support developing countries and their climate plans, we incorporate the just transition into that, then then we could have a very, very good outcome uh, next year at COP26. Excellent. Listen, I agree with everything that both of you just said. I think that, you know, contrary to what you might hear in a lot of different places, I think that the COVID-19 crisis and the period we find ourselves in and thinking about reinvesting and building back better will provide increasing opportunity for this just transition conversation to be central to our climate conversation and the opportunities that you all pointed out are really the ones that we need to focus on, as well as sort of helping countries and investors see their way to those opportunities, which is why we at CSIS are so excited about this partnership and this project that we're launching and look forward to working with you all on it. I just want to say thank you both Mafalda and to Nick for having this conversation today. There's certainly a lot to unpack in this current environment, and we look forward to continuing to do that over the coming months. But thank you both for spending some time with us today. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Nick. Thanks, Mafalda. Great to be on the call with you. Thanks to Sarah, Mafalda, and Nick for a great discussion. There are links in our bio to the recent piece about the project and to our Just Transition project page. We look forward to bringing you more on the Just Transition initiative throughout the course of the year. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks for listening. 